0: As we begin, today's sermon is going to be different than usual. Um, typically, for those that are visiting and those at Redeemer family as well, we're working our way right now, as you know, through Genesis. And uh, we handle each text as they come. And, but this morning is unique, so we're going to talk about resurrection. And it, we're not going to focus on a singular text rigorously. We're not going to work in the thought connections and the way that the syntax is working and the argument that's being made. Rather, what we're going to do is, is cover the theology and the thought of resurrection. So really, I, 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 the sermon might be a little bit more along the lines of an address than uh, a typical sermon where we're, we're following and placing the arguments. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll do two things. Um, one, that you'll have two passages in mind uh, and that you'll turn to both of these. The first one that I'd ask that you to turn to just now is Revelation 5. And then the other one that we'll, we'll land in just for a few moments to, to, to make some observations is going to be Hebrews chapter 2. So those are the two texts, but I'm going to use a lot more texts. And I don't want you to feel the need to turn to them. I'll read them for you. And I want you to sit back and enjoy the, 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 the presentation of Scripture. Not me, but Scripture's presentation of the power and meaning of resurrection. That, that's what I would ask for you as I begin. Because where we begin then on the thought of resurrection... Which is appropriate for us to consider, as you know, here in our cultural time and place as we consider it Easter as a particular celebration in the life of the church. But where the discussion on resurrection begins is this, the reign of Christ has both, and I I want you to consider this, sit back, I'm going to make arguments to you and I want you to just receive them, to track this with me as a... Christian, that I would fairly judge you to be one, and you would judge me also. So we share this in common, these thoughts together. The reign of Christ has both a present and a future dimension. Consider Paul's statement in Romans 1-4. Again, he says this, just hear this argument for your own soul's sake about the reign of Christ. Paul says only four verses into this magnificent epistle of Romans. Romans 1.4. He, that is Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power. Then he goes on as he describes it. He was declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By means of his resurrection from the dead. You see, that's the centrality of the resurrection. He has not declared the Son of God in power apart from his resurrection from the dead. You see, think of that. By virtue of his resurrection, Christ presently, right now, reigns in power by virtue of the resurrection. So so the object of our faith reigns and rules. And we believe that savingly because of, by virtue of, his rising from the dead. This is where I want you to consider Revelation 5. The picture here in Revelation 5 is the picture of Christ resurrected and ascending. So so you're, you're peering into John's vision of the Resurrection in the moments following. So I'm going to read the entire chapter. Chapter 5 of John's revelation says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel. There's not just a random being. Note the language. A strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Who's able? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang at that resurrection moment, at the ascension of the sun, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. You've established the church. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne. The living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, I mean, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, sang with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to do what? To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every Creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and the four living creatures they said amen And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see, this is the picture of the ascension. And so as we gather in this moment, his church those for whom he purchased by his blood from every language, every tribe, every people and nation. As we gather, we celebrate his resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand as pictured here in Revelation 5. We are also, are we not, reminded as pilgrims on the way that the whole of creation is not yet in complete compliance that is, we experience in reality that, yes, the beautiful vision of the Lord's resurrection His ascension to the right hand, and no doubt that worthy is he. Yet, we live in a world where it is not willingly in subjection unto the reign of Christ Jesus. That is, we experience enemies that remain. Luther, that is, Martin Luther, identified these remaining enemies. That is what pilgrims are subjected to as they're pilgrims on the way. He said they are threefold. The enemy is. The enemies are. Sin. The devil. And the world. But what I want to stress with you just for a next few moments, perhaps two or three hours. Is that we'd consider. Consider. What is shared among each of these? I, I, I don't want to treat sin and then the devil and then the world. That, that is, let's think for a few moments together about what, what what belongs to each of these together. That is, what is the common thread that sows one, two, and three together? Sin, devil, and world, these are the remaining enemies. Is that that he hasn't exalted and ascended? But we are pilgrims on the way. and how all of creation is in willing subjection. So what is the common thread that would unite these three constellations? Sin, devil, and the world. Paul calls it the last enemy. The last enemy is what is shared among them. That is, in speaking of Christ's present reign, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. Listen to the words here as Paul describes what we're speaking of as the last enemy. That which pieces all these constellations together and that which the pilgrim on the way experiences or will experience. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. For he must reign. That is what we read in Revelation 5. The picture of Christ. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All of them. He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the last one. You see, Christ presently reigns in real, in actual power as the resurrected Lord. As Paul said to the church at Rome, he was declared to be the Son of God in power through the Spirit by the resurrection from the dead. Yet, under his reign, in this age, death remains And it remains a tremendous and deeply entrenched enemy. We experienced a little bit of that yesterday. As we have all been praying for the Chittick family. This sermon was burning in my mind at a funeral the day before. Of a Christian. No doubt nonetheless, what stands out is that death remains a real enemy. And it will, to each of us in here, it will prey upon us at some point. But in the Christian faith, In the Christian faith, we believe that Jesus Christ has definitively overcome this enemy. We believe that. That is why we're here. That is why we gather each Lord's Day. We gather, and you know it, not as mourners but we gather as worshipers. Why? Because Jesus has overcome death. I lied already. Turn to Revelation 14. I'll just sneak this one in there. Turn to Revelation 14. I just want you to see this text. Revelation 14. Look at verse 13. Verse thirteen, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, "Write this. All right? What, 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 okay, great. Grab a pen. Hey, you need to pay attention to this. Write this one down. Okay, great. Write what? Write this. Blessed are the dead. Now notice how it's qualified: who die in the Lord." From now on. Blessed indeed. Says the spirit. That they may rest. From their labors. For their deeds. Follow them. This thought. Of the death of dying. Because. Right. Because you, you, you can't be blessed. And in, in, in dying. Uh, to, to die is to. To to release blessing or to be without blessing or to be removed. How, How are you dying and gaining blessing through dying? The important qualifier. They're dying in the Lord. So the Spirit said, blessed condition indeed. Why? Because the Lord lives. To die in him is to live again. This is the argument that John Owen, the magisterial Puritan theologian, John Owen, um, we were in a car ride yesterday, in fact, and we were asked at some point, uh, I don't remember all the survey questions, there were four of them at some point. one of them was something along the lines of a book that has influenced you, uh, what stood out to me when I was probably, uh, I was a, uh, a junior or maybe a senior. I can't remember what year, in college. Uh, I, I, I read uh, John Owen, as I'm introducing to you, that was probably the most for, formative book for me, theologically speaking, um, at that time, and then just life began to domino from there in that same thread of thought. That is John Owen's magisterial work entitled The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Do Do you see the beauty of that? It's a work given over to Christ on the cross. So how do we conceive of Christ's death on the cross? What's taking place there? What is the blessedness that the Christian gazes upon Christ on the cross? What is the blessedness when we sing of Christ on the cross? We just sang five verses, whatever it was, of the Jerusalem song. We sang from the beginning to the end. And at the the, the climactic point, we still see the scars that are still there. Uh, 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 evidence of the crucifixion what is the glory that the Christian sees in the crucifixion we see the death of dying we see the death of death in the death of Christ and it's this death blow brought to dying from where we see resurrection resurrection spring into reality. You see, while death remains an existential enemy, that word is overused, I tried to scratch it because it's constantly on the TV. Existential. Either which way, it's serious. It's actual. It's going to happen to you. so in this age as pilgrims on the way while it remains a real threat and a heartbreaking grievous one at that for those who have gathered this Lord's day because you fundamentally believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ I want to urge you for the next few moments of this there remain Though it remains as an existential threat to you, it's real. It's going to happen. You have to cope with that and deal with that and think that through. It's going to happen. So while it remains real to the Christian, there no longer remains cause for fear of it. That doesn't mean that we don't fear it. I mean, In moments of weakness, selfishness, pride, lack of courage, concerns over our faith, timidity, a number of weaknesses. Certainly, we do fear death. But what I want to urge you for the next couple of moments is I want you to at least admit to your own heart. There remains no cause, however, for you to fear Let me give you three reasons why there no longer remains cause for fear of death and dying. The first one is, now this is where we're going to turn to the second text, which is now the third text. But we are just going to stay there. Hebrews chapter 2. If you'd turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, just for a moment. I want to give you three reasons why, it's inappropriate for you to fear death. That is, I know that you still will, I do, in a sense, at times, in different conditions, in different ways of thinking of it. But I ought to be moved in my faith as you ought to be moved in your faith. It's irrational. It, it, there's no cause for me to fear it any longer. Why? Why not? For the Christian, why must I no longer have cause to fear death the first reason is provided in chapter 2 of hebrews and i'll give it to you as this there remains no longer cause for fear of death because jesus has tasted it for all who exercise faith in him okay there remains no longer cause I'm in fear of it because I have a just cause. No, 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 you you can't be in fear of it because you can no longer attach it to just cause. How has that cord been cut? Through Jesus who has tasted it for all who exercise faith in him. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9. I'm going to read verse 9 through 13 just to get the whole text. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. And again, we covered that in Catechism this morning, in questions 27 and 28, his humiliation. But but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely, Jesus. We see him, just as Paul described in Romans 1 crowned with glory and honor why because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone and then he goes on to qualify that and make it more clear as he moves on into verse 10 for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist it was fitting for him In doing what? In bringing many sons to glory. That he should do what? Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. saying. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. And again, he says, I will put my trust in him. And yet again, he says, Behold, I and the children God has given me. You see, while we... Always fear the event of dying. That is how we will die. Hopefully we're not morbidly sitting around questioning how we're going to meet our final end. But we think of dying. And we always fear how. I was getting ready to go into details, but you get the idea. I tell you not to fixate in gruesomeness and then I'm about to tell you a bunch of weird ways to die. But we fear the event of dying, of how it will be. Even my kids now say they hope they die in their sleep. Because we fear the suffering and sorrow that is coupled with it. It's not our friend. It's not a welcomed guest. It is an enemy. But we no longer fear the state of death. Though we fear the way in which we'll die. And we can no longer fear the state of death, according to this text, because death as a state of judgment was suffered by Jesus Christ. That's why we cannot have cause to fear that state. Because that state as judgment has been tasted on our behalf. And here it's important just to note that we are not going around God's justice and his due punishment for sin. It's important to the gospel that we grasp the wrath of God in the work of Christ. That what we see in Christ is his acceptance of the suffering that belonged to us so that we can share in the blessings that belonged to him. That's the exchange. Secondly, there remains no longer cause for fear of death because Jesus destroyed its power over all who exercise faith in him. Let me say that again. There remains no longer cause. The cord, again, has been cut. There is no longer cause for fear of death because Jesus has destroyed its power over all who exercise faith in him. Staying with the same text, follow the logic into verse 14 and 15. Notice in verse 13, remember he ended with the thought of his people, his elect, the children that belong to God. He says, behold, I and the children God has given to me. He goes on to describe his relations to the children. Verse 14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Why? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. What was the result? delivering all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, the text clearly eliminates our ability to fear the state of death because the provisional power that Satan possessed over death itself was stripped from him. You see it in the text He destroyed the power that was held by Satan provisionally over death. He stripped it of him through the cross. Paul says something similar in Colossians 2.15. He says that God, quote, disarmed the rulers. Think about that in your doubts. Between the world, the flesh, and the devil. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers. He disarmed them and the authorities. He disarmed them. And then further, he says, he put them to open shame. This occurred, that you you embrace this. We're here on this Lord's day because this is true. That, That through the cross, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them into open shame. How did he do such a says this by triumphing over them in him the event of the cross you see it was through the means of his dying for the children That Jesus disarmed and destroyed death's power over them. This is, again, why John Owen, if we're to talk of the cross, what's the central feature? Well, the death of death. In the death. Peter also describes it a similar way. In Acts 2:24, Peter says this: "God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death." If we were to, 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 to pull apart the piece of pangs of death, just to understand, it would literally mean: loosing the agony of death indeed death brings agony christ died to destroy the death of agony thirdly there remains no longer cause as we said firstly there remains no longer cause for you as a believer that is you this morning on lord's day who who casts your cares, who anchors your faith in Christ as its terminal and saving point. There remains no cause for you to fear death because he tasted it for you. He took what was yours and gave you what was his. Secondly, there remains no longer cause in your relationship to fearing death because he destroyed its power. We have that clearly stated in the text. And thirdly, There remains no longer cause for fear of death. It's not rational for you any longer as you exercise faith in Christ. There remains no longer cause for fear of death because Jesus, as we gather this Easter Sunday, Jesus arose victorious over it for all who exercise faith in him. John stopped. Wonderful preacher. Excellent book. Perhaps many of you have read it. Another formative book for me. In his work. Titled The Cross of Christ. An excellent book. I highly commend it to anybody. Who wants to consider the work of Christ in depth. Read it. It's readable. It's a work. But it's a labor that's worth it. The Cross of Christ by John Stott. He writes this. Quote. Victory. Victory conquest triumph overcoming this was the vocabulary of the first followers of the risen lord for if they spoke of victory at all they knew they owed it to the victorious jesus first corinthians where we began this morning in our reading as adam read for us is where we'll end You don't have to turn there. I'll turn there for you. Or if you'd like, it's a familiar text that you're aware of and has already been read. But to understand the language of victory and how stock gets there, we should see it as the Apostle Paul has described it in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56. This is what Paul writes. When the perishable puts on imperishable, how is that going to happen? Well, I go all the way back to the ascension. I read Revelation 5, and now I see how indeed it's possible. He has reigned. He is reigning now. He will reign forever and ever as he is worthy of all power, all might, all honor, all wealth, all wisdom. I know how. And then I move over and I see John told, you need to write this down. How do I conceive of death in this beautiful picture? Write this down. This is how. Blessed are all who die. What? What? In the Lord. Indeed. So Paul then says this. When the perishable. Puts on the imperishable. It's going to happen. And the mortal. Puts on immortality. When this happens. Not like if. A conditional situation. It's when. Then shall come to pass. The saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. That's the last enemy. It's going to come to pass. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, oh death, where is your sting? You see, here at the very end of the great text on the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that a definitive victory is obtained. It's obtained over death through nothing other than the resurrection of Christ. He is so certain of this, he likens it here in the text to a scorpion without its stinger or as a conqueror who has now been conquered so again in the words of John Owen death is the last enemy because until the consummation of all things we shall be subject to its power But that shall also come under the feet of Christ. And indeed, we shall die no more. Let us pray.